Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A new report suggests the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in New York started earlier than previously reported and spiked six times higher with devastating results in New York City. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King reports. The Empire Center for Public Policy recently unveiled new research in a webinar suggesting the state's first wave actually started around late January or early February of 2020, about a month before the state's first lab-confirmed case and peaked in mid-March. The government watchdog group is considered fiscally conservative, citing a retrospective analysis from the University of Washington's Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. Empire Center researcher Bill Hammond says the state's infection rate may have already been on the decline around the time then-Governor Andrew Cuomo announced lockdowns to stop the spread and scrambled to increase hospital capacity. Hammond wonders how officials might have acted differently had they known about the virus sooner. Maybe you would have made different decisions, including not Um, such a risky decision to send COVID patients into nursing homes. That decision probably made things worse for the people in the homes, and it certainly did not work out well for the governor because um, it became a huge um, scandal for him and and contributed to his resignation. Using data from all 3,140 U.S. counties, as well as international data collected by the IHME, Hammond compared the mortality rate of New York City to that of hundreds of other jurisdictions in their worst 12 weeks, respectively. Hammond says more than 23,000 people died in New York City during its worst period, from mid-March to mid-June of 2020, equating to a mortality rate of 261 per 100,000 people. While Hammond admits the data is imperfect, some jurisdictions, including New York, underreported COVID deaths during the pandemic. He says the difference is staggering. The median uh, turned out to be Australia at 21 per 100,000 during its worst 12 weeks. And then finally, New York City was 12 and a half times worse than the global median, its worst 12 weeks. Uh, only one other location posted an even worse outcome, and that was Mexico City uh, around the holidays in 2020-21. No other jurisdiction broke 200. Pulling from CDC data, Hammond says New York City's peak mortality rate was 64 percent higher than the comparable rate for any state and 63 percent higher than any of the country's 50 largest cities. He says New York City lost a greater share of its population in those 12 weeks than 85 percent of the jurisdictions in the IHME data set did in three years. The New York City Health Department did not return a comment in time for broadcast. In a statement, a spokesperson for the New York State Department of Health says the department maintains its actions saved the lives of countless New Yorkers in the early days of the pandemic, adding, quote, New York's response was based on the best available information at the time. Much has changed in three years, including the development and evolution of wastewater monitoring, and gives us more of an early warning system, for which there was none in early 2020. We have learned a great deal since then, and we'll read this report as part of our continuing effort to learn and improve, end quote. The metric that really matters in a pandemic is, is how many people die. And by that metric, New York City's uh, handling of the pandemic 
in that first wave was not just subpar below average, it was among the very worst in the world. To be clear, upon the arrival of a vaccine later on in the pandemic, hotspots shifted in the U.S. Looking at state-by-state data from Statista, California has the highest overall death toll in the nation as of March of this year, with more than 101,000 people killed by the virus. New York has the fourth highest death toll behind California, Texas, and Florida. The research comes amid the latest uptick in COVID cases nationwide and reports of a new variant. Governor Kathy Hochul has urged New Yorkers to take extra precautions against COVID, adding that the state is handing out free masks and monitoring wastewater for the presence of BA.2.86. State Health Commissioner Dr. John McDonald says the new variant is the most genetically different strain since the original Omicron variant. The CDC says it might be more capable of causing infection, but it doesn't appear to be more severe or resistant to treatment at this time. The latest data from the CDC's COVID data tracker shows two newer subvariants of Omicron, EG.5 and FL.1.5.1, are currently the most common strains in New York. Hammond says he hopes officials take his report with them going forward. He also wants to see a thorough review of the states and cities' responses to COVID in those early months. While he points to a number of reasons why New York City's first wave spiked so fast, so high, including heavy tourism, a lack of screening by the federal government at airports, and what he calls a botched rollout of test kits, he says the city's public health system should have been able to detect things sooner and act faster. The events of 2020 are kind of a roadmap to the weaknesses in our public health system, and we should follow that roadmap as well as we can and repair our public health system before the next virus arrives. You can read the whole report titled Behind the Curve at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The minority leaders of the state Senate and Assembly this week called for a special session to deal with the influx of migrants upstate. State Senate Minority Leader Robert Ord and State Assembly Minority Leader Will Barclay in a joint statement said, quote, there are now more than 100,000 migrants whose records, including things like vaccination status for those about to be enrolled in our public schools, are a complete mystery to local and state officials. Statement goes on to say estimates show New Yorkers are looking at a multi-billion dollar bill to cover expenses related to the crisis. In separate letters to the governor, the leaders urged action at the state level to ensure communities have the resources they need, taxpayers are protected, and they want to stem the flow of migrants by revoking New York's status as a sanctuary city. I sat down with Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes this week, a Democrat, and asked her about the migrant situation, including whether a special session should take place. Well, you know what, I, I do understand what a problem is created. Um, but, you know, I will just remind your listeners that we're New Yorkers, and we put more into the federal government than they ever return back to us. And here we are taking care of a problem that they should have fixed on their own. There should be a smooth stream to immigration process in this country. We always knew that other people would want to come here because, quite frankly, there is no one in this country now that wasn't originally here except the Native Americans and, of course, black people who were brought here just to build the economy. And so 
to now suggest that there's no pathway for other people who are coming from countries where they are being hurt. Their families are being killed. They're losing so much. And they're struggling to get here because we've created that kind of economy that they feel they can thrive in. And honestly, I think that they can thrive here, too, because we have a lot of employers who are looking for people to work. And quite frankly, these people are are willing to work. So if the federal government would do what they should do, and that is one creative – a smooth immigration process, a smooth asylum process, and or without the absence of either one of those, at least allow these people to work, I think we'd be in a better position. On, you know, the minority leaders calling for um, a special session, I, you know, I think that's all just a political grandstanding. Uh, They both know who has the ability to call a special session. And if they have not reached out to them and had conversations and built an argument on why they think it should be necessary, then they're just politicizing to their constituency to, I guess, in the short term, encourage people to be haters and support them uh, in re-election bids. And I, quite honestly, don't see that as being a moral humanitarian thing to do. Now, I will say this. New York State does not have the same legal status for accepting um, asylum seekers in the way that New York City does. And no one should try to make New York have that. New York City has its ability to make that decision for themselves. They did. They should not try to make that decision for all of New York State. Secondly, I will say this. If New Yorkers were any way like the Texans or the Floridians, whose government decided to put these people on buses and or planes, however they sent them here, and send them to New York, if we were any way like them, we would have sent them back to where they came from, from to Texas and Florida. But we didn't do that because we feel, I mean, I think that this is a humanitarian issue. It's not like these people are coming from comfortable homes where they're living a leisure lifestyle. They're living in fear. And... A lot of people who are in this country over the decades came here because they're living in, they were living in fear and they were looking for opportunity. Both of those things can be fixed if we work together as opposed to working in opposition, making everything about politics, about who's going to be elected and who's not going to be elected. The fact of the matter is at the end of the day, we're all, we claim that we trust God. We trust in God. Well, this is not godly for you to send people back into a harmful environment that they know is harmful and you know is harmful. Let's try to figure out how to make their lives safe and secure. That's what we should be discussing, not ways to stop them from being here. So then would a special session be helpful? You mentioned the federal government. Obviously, they pay a huge role in this. But in terms of humanitarianism, these people, many of them, and many of them are children, are suffering right now. Is there something a special session in New York can do to help that? What, what would a special session do to help that? I mean, the, that's the question I would ask them. If, if it's about um, already looking for resources for these governments to have additional resources to help them, I think that our budgetary structure is such that there are resources that they could use for that, that the governor could make that decision. And by the way, she's already given a billion dollars to New York City. That wasn't in our budget of last year, but it happened. And so I believe that there are ways that this can be fixed. If it's about money, let's just figure out how to fix it without necessarily doing a special session because we're out of our budget process. So we want to change the budget structure 
in order to have a special session to get resources here? I don't think that that's necessary. Well, I, one anecdotal remark I'll make, we're speaking with New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes. I was looking at the post that the minority leaders put up about the special session, and down below on the comments section on social media, one person said, there's only one way to handle this, deport them. You know, so many people, we, we don't like to think about it in our country, subscribe to NIMBYism, not in my backyard. You go away. I don't want you here. Well, suppose someone had said that to their ancestors when they came here 50, 60 years ago. They wouldn't even be here. I mean, put yourself in a position that these people are. You're supposed to treat people like you want to be treated. You're not supposed to treat them any other way. And I, I just think it's, it's cruel that people would think like that. And I said this earlier, and I'll repeat it. African Americans were brought here for one reason, and that's to build a U.S. economy. And we didn't even get paid during slavery, okay, in spite of what DeSantis thinks. There's no real benefit in that for us. But what we did do as a result of being enslaved is build the entire American economy. How dare we be a people who would not want to share that, even though we still haven't gotten our full due. But the people who have taken advantage of the full due on the backs of this kind of labor and still taken advantage of it and still control of the cold economy now wants to exclude other people, there's something wrong with that thought process. And I don't know how to help people fix that. All I know how to, what to do is to say, you have to treat people fairly. That's New York State Assembly Majority Leader. Crystal Peoples-Stokes. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. In response to the influx of migrants to New York City this year, Mayor Eric Adams relocated many upstate. The moves have irked local officials who say the city hasn't been coordinating in good faith. Among those relocated are children, and with the school year starting, some will be attending upstate schools. In August, the New York State School Boards Association conducted a survey of superintendents to determine the challenges and questions they face when it comes to educating migrant children. The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with the association's executive director, Bob Schneider. Well, as of right now, just to right-size the situation outside of New York City, uh, we did a survey out to our school superintendents, and what we received back about the asylum-seeking student situation is that only about 5% of school districts outside of the New York City area are affected. And uh, most of them, as I said, are in New York City, we quantified the number so far between 230 and 250 students um, have been moved to uh, outside of New York City districts and communities. And right now we can handle that situation as far as the school districts that are intaking them. I don't know if any more are going to be moved out of New York City. I have no idea, no prediction. But right now, our districts that are taking them in are prepared to do that. We have we do this all the time in school districts, Jim. For years, we've been intaking migrant students from all over the globe. A lot of these students don't speak English, and one of the things uh, that we we have in the system is uh, you know non-English speaking uh, learning uh, teachers uh, who teach. Uh, 
these students uh, how to uh, teach English because English is part of the public education curriculum. And we, we work with them uh, in immersive uh, programs. There's support systems for these students in the BOCES. Uh, to support them. We've been doing this for many years. Now, that being said, there still is a cost for each one of these children coming into the system. And they are costly in the sense that a lot of them do not speak the English language. And those support systems, along with other support systems, cost money. But again, we have a you know, we will intake them. We have a legal and constitutional responsibility to do that and a moral and ethical obligation in the public education system to intake these students. This survey, and I think you alluded to some of the some of these items already, what are the biggest needs identified by superintendents when it does come to serving migrant students? The biggest issue is the teacher shortage, and we hear this uh, with other positions within the school district, but we need English as a new language instructional staff. 95% of them um, said that they need more of those uh, personnel positions. And as I said, we do have certain structures in place, but and certain incentives, if you will. There's an incentive program where a teacher, a current teacher teaching whatever subject can get certified to be English as a new language teacher. Now, that helps out a little bit, and the BOCES have support systems, information and resources, and actually can teach them also at the BOCES location. But again, we have a a thin pipeline, if you will, for these type of teachers. That's the biggest issue in regards to the um, asylum-seeking students. You know, and the other things that, that we saw that that they need more of is other personnel. Um, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, bus transportation uh, people, bus drivers, and aides that, that sit on the bus. So it really does revolve around the personnel issue as far as, you know, staffing up. Uh, the funding is there this year. We have, you know, significant record funding, but now it's we need to put all the pieces together as far as the personnel. And that can be very challenging in certain uh, districts, like uh, rural districts, where there's population decline and and they just don't have enough people to uh, fill those spots. You mentioned there is room in the the budgets there. Um, The state education department pertaining to this issue has said that districts have the resources they need uh, to Mm -hmm. teach and provide for the migrant students. From what you're seeing, is that statement true? Yes, at this point, Jim, we we can handle this. And again, each one of those students is expensive. There's a lot of resources to support them, and we will do that. But it's you know if this continues and we see a large number coming into these districts, then then there probably will be a concern. But it, but we don't. I don't expect a large number coming in right now. Uh, it, it's we can handle it right now. And believe me, there are districts out there that are not. Um, taking those students in that m- it might be a real big challenge for them because they don't might not have the resources available but for the most part our districts that are taking them in have the resources right now the survey we've been discussing uh, alludes to this and, and you've mentioned it as well too I think a big factor for the New York superintendents is the unknown as it pertains to this situation, whether it be information about the migrant students themselves, um, yes. whether it be learning levels, any special needs, even immunization levels. Uh, from the standpoint of the State School Boards Association, sort of where, when, and how do school leaders expect to get that sort of information? 
Well, on the first part of that question, as far as the health records, immunization records, we are working closely with our county uh, offices within within that uh, that county where the school district is. We have to work closely with them. Uh, again, as I said, those students are going to be coming in to the school district. On the educational side, we have to make assessments of where they are as far as grade level, and then again, get the, the required resources to support them because some of these or many of them might be behind as far as age and versus grade level. But it's, it's, it's a two-pronged approach. Obviously, we're in the educational lane, so we'll, we'll make those assessments. We'll try to get those records, but it could be difficult. And then working with the county health departments to figure out the immunization records, and then we can figure out what immunizations they might need. You mentioned the cost per student, and obviously this has been broken down um, mm-hmm. for, I'll say, the average student in New York. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a breakdown yet for uh, serving uh, a migrant student? I don't have that number, but you could you could look we could look at the special education students, special ed students that come into a school district, again, require more resources, and that drives costs uh, significantly. I, you know, two times, three times the cost of of a, of a student, you know, uh, that that's in the system. So it, I would estimate around there. Again, if we get a lot coming into these districts, there could be an issue, but I don't see that at this point. Shifting to New York schools overall, uh, we've been speaking about teacher staff levels. Um, but in general, how are districts faring, uh, regardless of the English as a new language staffing? Well, st- we are wrapping up a research report, which we'll we'll put out in a few weeks. And probably a lot of similarities from what I've heard and, and read preliminarily. We did a survey back in, I think, 2018 or 19. And certain teachers are in high demand, and there's not enough out there. Special education teachers is one area. And then if you go out into uh, rural districts, uh, getting math teachers, uh, specific type teachers are not available. Um, and based on the pandemic and what happened and what we see in, in the job market right now, those challenges are still there and could be amplified. But again, we're wrapping up that, that research report. Uh, the point of the research report is to compare it to what happened before the pandemic and then look at the solutions that school districts are coming up with to get more teachers and other workforce into the school district. There are creative things districts can do, and they are doing it. For instance, districts can have an apprenticeship program through the Department of Labor where an existing teacher can and shepherd a new teacher who, say, is changing their career path over a one- or two-year period and help them learn how to teach, how to set up the curriculum, do all that stuff, and hopefully you know, recruit people from other industries that might want to be a teacher. And then there's other uh, creative things we're working with as far as working with uh, the university systems. And then State Education Department is trying to create less barriers to get teachers in the classroom, but the trick is ensuring that they are quality teachers teaching our students. And that, 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 that's a, that's a delicate dance. Not everybody knows how to teach, as you know, and some people um, can do it well. Others just aren't built for that. How are New York schools approaching COVID-19 this fall? There's a new variant being looked at and there's been an uptick in hospitalizations this summer. 
Well, we know the drill, Jim, as you are aware, based on the past, uh, depending on they'll handle it exactly how they've handled it in the past. You know, they have the protocols in place. They have the plans. We have not received any inquiries or concerns about this um, you know, happening in school districts. But one thing we do have now is, you know, we can pivot a lot more efficiently to doing either the hybrid or, you know, the online instruction. When we started way back when, uh, several years ago, it, it didn't work out as that well at the beginning because it was new and we had to do it immediately. But now we have the infrastructure, infrastructure, the software, the teachers and the administrators know how to use it. So that would be will be helpful if those schools have to close down because of COVID uh, issues, but we don't see any at this point happening. We haven't heard about any, but uh, stay tuned. But we, we are prepared to do that with the plans that each district had to uh, put together during COVID, during the pandemic. And finally, I know the academic year is just getting underway, but looking at the political calendar in New York State, uh, for the 2024 uh, budget year, you mm-hmm. worried at all about a tougher budget uh, or potential cuts, anything along those lines when it comes to public education? It's a good question. And, you know, every year, you know, we, we work tirelessly with other organizations, education stakeholders uh, to get the proper funding. Um, we, we had record funding uh, this year. We had the foundation aid restoration. We had the state aid increase. And obviously we had the federal money, which runs out in 2024. We will advocate for additional money over the baseline number of the foundation aid and state aid. And hopefully we will, you know, we can get more money for the school districts because costs are going up, as you know. Um, and and we'll, we'll, we're going to advocate for that, we have to maintain the momentum as far as the learning gap. We've got to keep focusing on all these children that are still behind in regards to what they missed or, or you know, or the, the, the missed opportunities during during the pandemic. So we are going to push hard for, for more money. Again, the economic picture of New York State down the road, according to the controller, does not look that good, but we are going to advocate uh, to try and, uh, you know, keep all those financial supports in place uh, for the next worst workforce that, you know, is coming through uh, eventually. We have to, to make sure these students are uh, ready to work in the world um, and be successful individuals to contribute to the uh, local economies, statewide and national economies. That's New York State School Boards Association Executive Director Bob Schneider speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, uupinfo.org. 